I look forward to meeting new faces and again greeting old friends as well. We'll be in Luke chapter 5 this morning. Luke chapter 7. It's good to know where you're preaching from. Luke chapter 7 this morning. And as I get myself together here. This is uh, really, yeah, I feel like I say this every time I preach, but um, this is really among one of my favorite passages. Uh, There's something just amazingly poignant about this passage in the Gospels. It is, the, uh, it is only found in the Gospel of Luke. And so would you join me as we read together Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. I'm reading actually from the uh, English Standard Version. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her her tears and wipe them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of a woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had one or had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, "The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt." And he said to him, "You have judged rightly." Then, turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, "Do you see this woman?" I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What an amazing and awesome passage. Would you pray again with me briefly? Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, what a privilege it is that we might be able to come before you this morning and, and to come to this wonderful passage. And Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, help us? As we all seek to look into it and, and hear from you, would, would you send your Holy Spirit, Lord, to open our hearts and our minds, not just to its meaning, but also to pour forth to you the worship that you deserve 
and what you intend. Accomplish great things, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled my, uh, my message, An Awkward Situation at Simon's House, and uh, no doubt, and we'll, we'll get into more of, of that, but we can already sense why, why it would be an awkward situation. But before we get to that, it's just good to have some background. Jesus, by this time in his ministry, is very well known. The, uh, the start of his ministry was humble. He, he started from humble little Nazareth, but by this time, he has been healing, he has been casting out demons, he's been cleansing lepers, he has even in the town of Nain raised the dead. Dramatic miracles has he been doing, and crowds, literally multitudes, are following him from place to place. By this time, he is a public figure. He is a, a matter of great curiosity. And back in chapter 5, verse 15, it says this, But now, even more, the reports about him were abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. It is at this time, interestingly also, that in the book of Matthew, if you kind of set them side by side, the very things that are recorded as far as the concerns that John had, John the Baptist by this time was in, in prison, and he sends some of his disciples to ask, are you the anointed one, are you the Christ, or should we look for someone else? That very same place in the Gospel of Matthew, as we find just before here, there is inserted the very famous words of Christ where he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We'll see in a few minutes and wonder whether or not that played a role in our story today. So as, as uh, we approach this passage, I've broken it into three different points. First, an awkward situation. Secondly, a direct comparison, and then thirdly, a mighty declaration. And so first of all, an awkward situation, verses 36 to 39. Again, I'll go ahead and, and read those again. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she heard that when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiping them with her the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. In this particular part of the passage, we find a couple of different characters who are, you know, mainly there besides Jesus. Of course, we have Simon the Pharisee and also some of his buddy Pharisees, actually. We find later in the passage that there were other Pharisees who were also seated there at the table because they begin to also question. And so you've got a gathering in the house of rather austere priestly men, no doubt, probably in unusual garments. It would feel like a, a very special gathering. And one 
Simon has actually invited Jesus to come and share a meal. It's kind of amazing, an amazing situation because we often think of Jesus and as we should as the friend of sinners, often, you know, hanging out with, with tax gatherers and, and, uh, and we're grateful that Christ has such a reputation, so much so that as we know from the gospels that he was often accused of being a drunkard and uh, a glutton himself, though he was not, but because he hung out with people like that so often, that was the case. But here we find that he accepts the invitation of a very religious, very austere man, and we have to give credit to Simon that he actually desired to know this prophet, this uh, miracle worker from Nazareth, and so he invites him to share a meal. Now the Pharisees, for any of us who read our Bibles, we're very familiar with this particular group. We know concerning them that they were the strictest sect of the Jewish religion of that time. They were the ultra-conservatives. And they started out actually as a good movement to preserve the holy law of God. That was the desire that started Phariseeism, is they were concerned in, with all of the pagan influence around Israel that God's holy law would be preserved. And so they started with a very good intention. But over time, unfortunately, they also became conceited and critical of anyone basically who was not like them. And we see that you know, throughout the New Testament in the Gospels where they would look down upon anyone who didn't understand things the way that they did and considered themselves instead to be righteous. In fact, they were so self-righteous and so uncharitable in many cases that they referred to the non-Jews as dogs openly and wouldn't even eat with other Jews since they could not be sure that the food that was served with them to them would be ritually pure. So they were the separate ones. They were the ones who everybody knew, like, oh, there's the holy ones, and then there's the rest of us. And so they had this reputation. Not only were they regarded that way by the people, they regarded themselves also in that way, in a better place, in a more holy place than the rest. They were, as we sometimes say these days, a piece of work in many ways. But we have to give credit to Simon because he did actually invite Jesus, and he wanted to, to know more about Christ, and so he invites him to his house. And so we certainly want to give credit to Simon. So that's, that's one of the characters, and, and uh, Simon and his friends. But also under this awkward situation point, we have the woman. Now, we know very little about this woman. It says in verse 37 that she was a woman of the city who was a sinner. She obviously had a reputation in town. For in verse 39, Simon says to himself concerning Jesus, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman it was who's touching him that she's a sinner. Everybody knew, apparently, who this woman was around the town. And so Simon asks this question, was she a prostitute? She probably was, actually. She probably was. We don't know for sure. Many throughout the history of the church have actually held that this woman, who were not told this specifically, but they have held that she was Mary Magdalene. Now, again, we're not told specifically that she was, but in the very next chapter, in chapter 8, she is mentioned first among the women who were following Jesus and were close followers with him. It may very well have been the history of Mary Magdalene that we're seeing here. 
But, and it says concerning her, if it is Mary Magdalene, it says in chapter 8, verse 2, that seven demons were cast out of her. The imagination rather runs wild in a way as we try to piece together who was this woman who, who so daringly, apparently, so, so awkwardly comes into Simon's house among this austere group dining at the table with Jesus, and she, a woman of reputation, has the audacity to walk in to this meeting and to begin to do something that must have felt cringing to those who were there. And we find, indeed, they were asking a lot of questions. We don't know how or where, but it is clear, though, that she had already been deeply affected by the ministry of Christ. And I'm going to speak a little bit more about this later. But it seems clear that this woman, somehow or another, had already been in the presence of Christ, in the presence of his preaching, had been ministered unto, and had already placed her hope in Jesus. And that what she does here is simply the outflow of worship, of appreciation, of deep soul gratitude towards the one who has saved her. We'll, we'll speak more about that in a few minutes. But standing, I like to think, and I wonder, was she among the multitudes as Christ was preaching? Was she somewhere in the back somewhere, perhaps standing next to a tree, not wanting to be noticed, not wanting any of her friends perhaps to know that she was there, but among the multitudes, was she somewhere among the crowds? And had she heard Christ's majestic and amazing invitation, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble, gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Man, have you ever, have you ever really, I know you have, many of you have, I have when you're just crushed under the burden of your own sin, when you're feeling like, Lord, here I am again. Here I am again. And I've disobeyed you again. And I don't know what to do, Lord. I don't know what to say, except I'm sorry again. <laughs> did this woman feel that way? I believe she did especially for the first time. Here she had been exposed to nothing but the ministry of the Pharisees. When it came to God, they were really good at declaring, as they should, the righteousness and judgment of God and how we must be pure and separated. But as for her, whatever we don't know about her, one thing we know, she was anything but. She was anything but. And you know what that's like. People get to the point sometimes where they're like, yeah, I I can't, I can't keep up with religion, and so I'm not even going to bother. <laughs> you know, like there are those religious people, and perhaps God's pleased with them, but as for me, I'm just going to live life because I can't, I can't, I can't do it. I can't be like that, so I give up. I kind of do wonder 
whether or not this woman had gotten to that point where you've gone beyond trying and you've basically gone sort of over that cliff and you've gotten to the point where it's like, I'm just committed to like, I'm just going to be however. And I just got to wonder whether or not this, this woman had, there's this place where you get beyond trying, where you finally kind of give way to your sin and just going for the pleasures of the world. And beyond that, there is a hardness of heart where you're like, yeah, and I'm enjoying it now. I'm enjoying it now. I'm not only not trying, I even start to encourage other people to live a life of sin so that I feel a little bit better about myself. There's this progression that happens when we harden our heart. First, it's discouragement, but it can lead all the way to a brazenness. And I wonder whether or not this, this woman had gotten to that place in her life, but, praise God, it would appear... <laughs> that Christ had, the Holy Spirit had arrested her in her sin and said, like Nathan said to David, you are the woman, <laughs> you are the man, and, and brought conviction to her heart and a brokenness of heart to where she was crying out, wondering, how can I find mercy for all that I have done? Oh, how sweet the words must have been Assuming that she might have heard those words, come to me and I will give you rest. Sick to death of her life of sin, she believed in Christ. And I just want to pause here and just ask you, it's a simple question. We hear it a lot in church, but have you, have you come to the place of desperation in your sin? Sick. Sick of it. See in Jesus hope, one who will, if you'll only turn to him, he will give you rest. But we, we, we ask further, whatever the case was, this is what, look what she does. Look what this, this lady does. She, she performs this stunning act of humble, grateful devotion and love. Again, in verse uh, 37 and 38, if you'll read with me there. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping and began to wet his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This amazing act of worship. Now, to say the least, this was a very awkward situation at Simon's house, to say the least. And just, just so many of you may know this, but this, this phrase that's in the scriptures talking about recline at table, it's very, it's very odd to our ears. And Jesus went to recline at table. First of all, we wonder why doesn't it have a, a the, recline at the table? You know, it just seems like, hey, wouldn't that be easier to say? But just so you know, the custom was is they had tables that were really only about like knee high. And as they would recline, they literally were reclining where they would put their heads, literally supporting their heads with their left hand and they would eat with their right and their feet, they would literally be laying on the ground on mats and their feet would be out away from the table. And so it helps us to understand how, how did this actually work? Like, here's Jesus, and he's, he's at, like, we think of it, if he's at the dinner table, 
you know, it doesn't make any sense is how this woman could be wetting her feet. But in that case, his feet are behind him. All of the men are centered around the table. And so here they are discussing whatever they were discussing, the theology of the day and the concerns or whatever. Meanwhile, this lady is behind Jesus, kissing his feet. The place is being filled with the smell of an, a, an amazing ointment. Everybody is, is sitting there, no doubt, thinking like, this has got to be one of the weirdest things that's ever happened in my life. You know, like, it was really a strange situation. And what's really interesting, too, is... I think, I think it's safe to say that the Pharisees, the reason why he, he was inviting Jesus is they were sizing him up. They were trying to understand and get a sense of like, who is this prophet from Nazareth doing miracles? What are we to make of him? And many of those questions were good questions, but they're seeking to size him up to see if he really truly be a prophet of God. And we see this again in Simon's own thinking as we're given a little window into his mind in verse 39 in so many words where he's saying, there's no way, there is no way this man could be a prophet of God if he's letting this happen with this lady. There's no way. If he's letting this kind of lady touch him and have this whole thing happen, this very awkward situation, he cannot be a true prophet of God. So passing on to our second point, uh, a direct comparison. So in response to Simon's private thought, interestingly, because we're told that Simon thought it to himself. If this man were a prophet, he would never let this happen. And it says, Jesus answered him. So we have this wonderful knowledge that we're, we're shown that Christ has of Simon's private thought. Jesus answers with this super simple comparison that a child really could understand. And we see this in verses 44 to 47 where he says, or 41, I'm sorry, to, um, let's see here. Okay, yes, 44 to, okay, a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answers rightly, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So this very simple comparison that Christ lays before Simon and his friends who were there. But then the punchline in 44 to 47. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? <laughs> I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not, account, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. This is the great punchline of Jesus' very brief little parable. And what is he saying? What is he saying? He's saying, Simon, do you know why this woman is here doing the things and making a scene? 
as she is, it's because she loves me. <laughs> She's here because she loves me. Do you know why she loves me, Simon? Because her eyes have been opened to the very humbling reality that she owes God an unpayable debt for all the sins that she's committed against him. And she knows I am the answer that she has longed for deep in her soul, the only solution to her greatest problem. Therefore, I tell you, verse 47, her sins, which are many, are or more rightly translated, have been forgiven. And this is how you know, Simon. This is how it shows, Simon. She loves me much. She loves me much. But Simon, he might continue, by comparison, I'm concerned that you know little of my forgiveness because you show me so little love. For he who is forgiven little loves little. That's how it shows, Simon. That's how it shows. Simon, I know you think you owe God a debt, or you don't owe God a debt. And that was the case. Simon was apparently not very convinced that he owed God a debt, but you do. And since you don't see your need for forgiveness, you do not see your need for me. That's the biggie, isn't it? That's the biggie. And brothers and sisters, here we learn some very important things. First of all, great forgiveness leads to great love for Christ. It's just right there on the surface of the text, right? Great forgiveness leads to great love for Christ. There's a preacher, his name is H.B. Charles. As he puts it, he says, You can never embrace the good news of salvation until you first embrace the bad news of sin. That's for sure. This woman, she had apparently embraced the very bad news that she was a sinner, a hopeless sinner, until she came into contact with the Savior. Jesus himself is the good news. He is the embodiment of the gospel, and our love for him is in direct proportion to how much we understand that our sins have... Uh, I'm sorry... Um, that our sins have, had made us a hopeless debtor to God, except that Jesus paid that debt in full at the cost of his precious blood. Praise God. Praise God. Let us never forget how much we've been forgiven. And you know what's really interesting about this idea is we find that those who, who are aware of their sins in the Scriptures are not crushed by it when they are saved by the Savior. We find the Apostle Paul, for instance, at one point calling himself the chief of sinners, foremost among sinners, and yet we don't get the sense that Paul is sort of curled up in a fetal position about it because he has such freedom in the forgiveness that was his, and the love of Christ controlled him. So these two things can be right next to each other. We're saying, well, Let's never forget how much we've been forgiven. And some might say, well, man, that seems so you know, counterproductive. It seems like you'd just be constantly depressed about you know, what an awful person you are, and yet that's not what we find in the Scriptures because the, the love of Christ presents within us this sense that we are free. As Christ said, come to me and I will, 
I will give you rest. And that rest is the consuming reality of the forgiven sinner, even while we remember how much of a debt was paid on my behalf. But secondly, under this, not only does great forgiveness lead to great love for Christ, but also great love leads to great service for Christ. Look how this woman served the Lord out of the overflow of her love. We're still, still talking about it today in the way that she, she served the Lord on this day. And so I want to ask you, do you love Christ? Do you love Christ? Is it this, this is the secret of great service for Christ. I always found it interesting that the Apostle Peter in his, his first book says, though we have not seen him, we love him. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, he could say so many things about our relationship to Christ, but, but there should be a love that your forgiveness and my forgiveness creates within us. And even if we have not seen him, which we have not in, the, in body, so do you love Christ? It is the secret of great service to Christ. Peter wanted to do great things for God. He himself wanted to do great things for God. But he, as many of us know, he had the wrong idea of how that was going to get done. Remember his boast, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I will die for you, he said, at the, as we call it, the Last Supper, right in the upper room. And we know how that worked out, right? What a boast he had. I'm, I'm going to stick with all these other guys. They're going to run away, not me. I'm, I'm hanging to the end, to the bitter end. He wanted to serve Christ, but he had the wrong idea of how it went. And remember what Jesus asked him in John 21 when he reinstated him for service. Do you remember? He said, Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Not Simon. Have you repented of your self-sufficiency and pride? Not, Simon, are you sure you won't mess up again? Or not, Simon, are you really, really serious about your commitment this time? He doesn't say any of those things. He says, Simon, do you love me? Do you love me? And we remember his wonderful response. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then the threefold repetition, then feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And we better believe after this that Christ loved, or that Peter loved Christ more than ever. When he had that sense of, man, if I've never been forgiven before, I'm forgiven now. I thought I was lost. Can we, we can only imagine what that interval was like between his denials and Christ reinstated him as the resurrected Christ, saying, I love you. You are forgiven. Do you love me? Man, what had happened within his soul and how? What a great relief and love he had for Christ then. But I wanted to also add very quickly, but love-filled service to Christ is not always so dramatic, right? We all know this. It's not always so dramatic. It's loving our spouses and our children day in and day out. It's being an honest worker at work when nobody but God is looking, right? It's doing the dishes for our wives so that she doesn't have to do them. Again, it's controlling our temper when we really feel like blowing up. 
for the sake of Christ, it's like, oh man, everything in me wants to just get angry in a sinful way. It's controlling our temper or taking that phone call from a troubled friend when we were really hoping to sit down and relax. A lot of these kinds of things are pretty, you know, unnoticeable by most, but that's where the stuff really gets done, right? Love for Christ, desiring to honor him in the nitty gritty every day. Things which God calls us to do in honor of him. At all these things at bottom are done in the true believer. They're done out of love for Christ. So I hope you're encouraged by that. So thirdly, we come to our third point, a mighty declaration. And there we find this in verses 48 to 50, where it says, And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This mighty declaration, your sins are forgiven. Why is this a mighty declaration? Well, first of all, even as uh, the Pharisees rightly, a few chapters earlier, asked this, a very similar question. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus declares that her sins are forgiven, he is making a claim to be God, for God alone can forgive sins because he's the one that's offended, right? If you're, that's how forgiveness works, right? If, if I offend you, I have to come to you for forgiveness, nobody else. Jesus, by stating that somebody's sins are forgiven in God's name, is making a claim I'm the offended one, and I declare in his name, you are forgiven. He's making a claim to deity to be God of very God. And so they ask a very similar question, and rightly in this very case, they say, who is this? And some Bibles say, who is this man is added. Who is this who even forgives sins? And we all do well to ask the same question, who is this? Who is this? If you've never honestly asked that question, take a hard look at this passage and many others and consider Christ's oft claim, many formed claim, that he was God in the flesh. He was God himself in human form, the incarnation and fleshed. We see the Godhead. Christ made that claim. Have you ever considered it seriously. It's all over the New Testament. He gave evidence like no one else that he actually was God come visit the earth. Who is this? But secondly, and on what basis? So we have this mighty declaration. What was the mighty declaration? It is your sins are forgiven in God's name. But also under this point, on what basis does he make this mighty declaration? And this is what I alluded to earlier. This this passage sometimes has been confused as far as what the basis was for this woman's forgiveness. Was it because of this woman's love that she was forgiven? The, the, the text kind of sounds that way. In verse 47, it says, her sins are forgiven for she loved much. It kind of sounds like, okay, based upon the fact that she had loved so much that she had been forgiven. 
And just a few thoughts on this. The verb here, are, her sins are forgiven, as I had mentioned earlier, is actually, it's in the perfect tense in the original language, meaning an action that is completed in the past once and for all. So many of the the, uh, translations are, her sins have been forgiven. That is actually accurate. It's more accurate in that sense, at least rendered in the English, that she has already been forgiven. But it's also clear, isn't it, from the parable that that Jesus teaches, right? He says, you know, you got these two moneylenders, neither one of them could pay. And so when they were both graciously forgiven, it is then he asked the question, who will love much? It is clearly out of the graciousness of the moneylender that forgiveness is granted before there's any question about who's going to have affection for the moneylender, who's going to love. Right, And so it's clear even from the parable that the love is resulting from the forgiveness and not a result of um, the love. And then just finally, as clearly as it could be, both debtors, again, are forgiven first, and then Christ says, who will love more? And so the, many of the Bible translations put it this way, Therefore I tell you, her sins, her many sins, have been forgiven. That is why. She loved much. Now, it's probably not the most um, sometimes, you know, wooden translation from the words of the Greek to translate it that way. It's probably more literally to say, for she loved much. But in the English, at least, it makes it more clear that that is why she loved much. But the real clincher is in verse 50, as he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her faith was the basis of her forgiveness. Her love was the fruit or the result of her faith. And I I was meditating in preparation this morning just on this very simple phrase here at the end. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In uh, the prayer meeting just before the service, We looked at Psalm 97, which speaks about righteousness is the foundation of God's throne. And I was thinking about that in contrast to our story this morning. I'm thinking, how can this be? We approach a God who is so holy that it says righteousness is the very foundation of where he sits in his king, on his kingly throne. How in the world can any of us approach such a God and not be utterly consumed for even one sin, let alone those of us who have many sins? And that's really, that's all of us, right? And this woman included. How can this be? How great a salvation is it that makes it possible For sinners like us and this woman to come to the God-man and say, give me how great a sacrifice has been given on behalf of all of us that this God whose foundation, the uh, the, the, the foundation of his throne is righteousness, how great a sacrifice, how great a salvation is it that makes Jesus able to say, in the name of God, your faith has saved you. Now go and be more careful. No. Now go in peace. 
It's easy to just blow by those words. Go in peace. Peace. Peace with God. So great, so thorough, so perfect is the sacrifice of Christ, and so cleansing is his blood for all those who put their simple faith in him. Your faith has saved you when you look to Christ as the only hope that you have for the forgiveness of yours and my many sins. He says to you and to me, go in peace. You got peace with God once and for all. It is finished. Once and for all, go in peace. Just a few final thoughts as we come to a close. I want to do a address, as it were, any secret Simons who might be sitting here this morning. Any secret Simons who may be out there who may not, if you're honest, think that you're all that bad or that you owe any great debt to God. I hope, I hope that you can see from our passage, our story today, that you are quite wrong. You are very wrong, actually. Simon, if we would have known him, he was an extremely religious man. His life, practically speaking, at least as much as we could see the outside, his life would have put many of ours to shame as far as the carefulness with which he sought to at least outwardly obey God. He was a very religious man. And yet Jesus said he too owed an unpayable debt. Maybe the debt was less than the woman. Probably was. Only God knows that. But even based on the parable, we know, all right, 1,500, 150, there's some difference here. Both of them needed forgiveness of their sins. Both of them, it says, had an unpayable debt. Never could pay. Never, ever, ever, ever. If you're a secret Simon, please see from from our passage that however righteous you may think your life to be in comparison to others, you have also an unpayable debt to God. Compared to God's righteousness, it's unpayable. You need Christ, and so do I. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, we must ask ourselves, are we willing to enter heaven side by side with the chief of sinners and to owe all our hopes only to free grace. If not, the Lord might say to you, like he did Simon, I have something to say to you. I like that. I got a little word for you, and we can fill our own names into the blank. Self righteousness is among the most common but most deadly soul diseases. Go to the Lord and ask him to show you your deep need of him. And then finally, to anybody here who might be tempted to think, I am truly a hopeless sinner. Now, none of us might be able to tell that you would have a thought like that as we would look at you or you would look at me, but it's a reality. There are people walking around out there who don't even want to think about God or the scriptures or the, the life to come because they are so actually and honestly convinced they are in a hopeless case. They are a hopeless case. They're in a hopeless state that forgiveness could never be given to them for all of the sins they've committed. Maybe they're different than this lady. They probably are, even if they're not. But inwardly, you feel so worthless, so hopeless, that you could never dare to think that God might actually forgive me. 
And I just want to ask you, do you feel with her weary and heavy laden, burdened by your many sins like this woman? Have you come to see that sin is a cheat, how it draws you in with its empty promises and then it uses you up and spits you out as dead? That's what sin does. The scripture says that the wages of sin is death. The payment that we get back for having worked for sin as our taskmaster is it pays us back in shekels of death, so to speak. Are you sick in your soul over the person that you have become? Again, maybe nobody would ever be able to guess it, but you know in your secret life that you're sick of it. You're sick of being that person. Then I hope, I hope if that's the case, that you can see from our story that Jesus would love for you to come to him for forgiveness. He would love for you to come. He knew about this woman. He knew what she had done. He knew it all. Every immoral night, every foul-mouthed blasphemy, every drunken stupor, every hateful thought and deed against God, vicious, bitter cursing that she had done against God. And yet, and yet, look how he welcomed her so freely. Full, free forgiveness was all hers as soon as, as soon as she turned to him in faith. How amazing. How amazing is grace. And he will welcome you too. He's welcomed many of us already, and we've known the freedom of grace. I pray if anyone here has not yet come to Christ for free, full forgiveness, may this be the day. Come, be washed, be set free, have peace with God. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for what a great salvation you have given to us in Christ. Thank you for passages like this in your word, Lord, which clearly show the contrast of the holiness of Christ and the wickedness of our sin and the examples, the real examples of people burdened and crushed and poisoned by its reality. Lord, thank you that you are a friend of sinners. Thank you that there is also, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, Lord, would you grant that for all those who already know you this morning, may their hearts be encouraged. May we delight and worship you for the amazing and full grace that you've poured out and continue.